Fire's burning, fire's burning. Draw nearer, draw nearer. In the glowing, in the glowing, come sing and be merry. I'm Ian Shanahan. And I'm Jade Harvey Beryl. And welcome to our Fireside Chat. Hello and welcome to Earthy Chats, Fables from the Field. This is our summer sub-series of Earthy Chats, where we're going to talk about our favourite outdoor learning equipment and resources as we share stories of our outdoor adventures and sometimes mishaps out in the field. I do definitely feel and I utilize things like magnifiers to help some young people overcome their fears of bugs and creepy crawlies and I'm pretty passionate about teaching about how important bugs uh, and and the decomposers of our ecosystem are and the services that they provide in breaking down the waste that nature and everything within it create and I get the kids to look at the trees uh, in a forest and I tell them if so if life is too small what do you do you bring it closer to you and if you're not a wizard and i don't know any wizards so if you're not a wizard A good way to stand in for having a magic wand is to have a magnifying glass or a hand lens, and you can bring all that is small closer to you. And I have a lot of experience doing that, mainly with insects. A lot of insects, particularly dragonflies and damselflies, which have sort of become honorary birds. Like a lot of people who are really interested in birds during the low season, like midsummer when you're kind of in between migration and birds are either still on their nests or they're still on their breeding territories there's more activity in the insect world in high summer that's when butterflies dragonflies some of the more charismatic microfauna are more prevalent and dragonflies have really increased in uh, just their popularity over the past i'd say 15 20 years and there are a lot of local guides to dragonflies and damselflies and now you can get you know dragonflies and damselflies of eastern north america of western north america and while some are readily identifiable without catching them you can just see them on the wing and you can tell what they are a good number of them you have to catch and you have to look at their reproductive appendages with a hand lens or some sort of magnification and a lot of people who i know carry around little cheat sheets that show the differences in the reproductive appendages of dragonflies and damselflies. And, you know, some of these people have these little pocket guides and you can get little pocket guides uh, to these. And it is quite fun to be able to see how, you know, two species of emeralds, for example, that look almost exactly the same, but are different in the reproductive appendages. And then when you can identify them, you then look at the natural history information about them and okay this one is more in fens whereas this one is more in bogs well where am i right now oh i'm in a bog ah that's why this one is here and not the other one that looks really similar so you know a hand lens can be a really interesting entry point into the unique lives of the smaller among us 
Absolutely. And I feel like the small things in life are often overlooked. So I also love looking at macroinvertebrates when looking at um, water and different, um, the presence of different species telling you that, you know, mayflies need a higher water quality um, than a snail, than a water snail. So if you find damselflies, things like that, then it tells you that you're living, it's a more unique uh, ecological niche. So looking, yeah, at those macroinvertebrates is super cool. But even as well, I love rolling logs. I'm really into teaching Mm. right now about the wood wide web, about the connection uh, between trees and the mycelium fungi network and how the trees utilize the mycelium network, which can go just for like square kilometers around to send communicative signals about needing water or nutrients and one of the things you can find in most forests if you flip a log always flip it back when you're done um but a you'll find an enormous amount of insects but you'll find this web of like white filament which honestly previously to my sort of research into this i thought was something to do with spiders or insects but it's not it's the mycelium fungi network and it's beautiful and you know then you start you can go down the i mean you can go down a rabbit hole with any of this but talking to kids about lichen like we have a lot of lichen in our forests where i am and talking about and i like to draw a picture and it's a fungi and a and an algae piece of algae i call it algae but i know it's algae here yeah holding hands yeah, and they have this symbiotic relationship. So the algae performs photosynthesis to provide food and the fungi provides the home. And then you get lichen, of which there are these incredible diversity of ones that look like lobes and crusty ones and these little sort of ones that look like little ice cream cones or microphones mm-hmm. that you'll find low down. And it just, oh, you really start to pay attention to diversity when you have a hand lens and any age any age kid any human give them something and get them to sort of look at different shapes and sizes and it's mind-blowing it's mind-blowing that reminds me of the you must know the the algae fungus joke no okay here this is it's bad it's not my joke am i I, gonna We need one of those like wah, wah. Okay, so it's short. Okay. So once upon a time, Freddy the fungus and Alice the algae met. And they got married. And even though their relationship was on the rocks, they were liking it. <laughs> but you'll never forget that that's oh. what a lichen is. You'll never forget. Oh, I've never heard that. And I... I'm going to use that in some of my older kids. I don't think the younger ones will quite get the the process, but I really enjoy that. You made me happy. Um, I didn't realize it it was the Dutch, apparently, that started making lenses, like going back into the late 16th 16th century. And, you know, it just boggles the mind that that's when we began to, to look at things. And I think so much modern medicine and understanding of... Everything has come from being able to look at the microscopic world or at small things, right? You know, I'm not taking a, a full microscope out into the field, but it just, you know, hundreds of years 
have come to get us to the point where now we can have these little handheld, really high quality lenses and, and let kids investigate the natural world around them. Well, it's a means of making the ordinary extraordinary. Like you look, you catch something like a butterfly and, you know, many butterflies, beautiful colors and patterns. Then you look with a hand lens and you can see the individual scales that give butterflies those colors and patterns. And all of a sudden it totally changes how you understand what a butterfly is. And for that matter, what a moth is, you know, they, they both have the scaled wings. That's what Lepidoptera means in Latin. And yeah, on the surface, it might not be as interesting, but you bring bring it close with the hand lens and boom. And I love the example you mentioned about the fungus. Do you have blue stain fungus out your way? Not that I'm aware of, but I'm not the expert. So I'm going to look it up now. Yeah, it's it's one that's very common in the East. And you see it on a lot of rotting logs. It's one of the major rotters in the hardwood forest. And it does have little little mushroom heads that pop up. But for the most part, you know, flipping logs, looking for salamanders and that sort of thing. And it really looks like someone has taken like a malachite blue-green and stained the logs. Like it almost looks oh. synthetic. Oh, but I would is... notice that. I would have yeah. seen that for sure. No, I haven't seen that. Oh, that's so beautiful. I don't know. Mushrooms really seem to capture people's attention. Like they seem so esoteric, but I don't know if you found this, you know, when you're out and you find like a really neat patch of like waxy caps or some, you know, boletes or some of the amanitas, you know, the, the poisonous ones that, you know, literally can kill you if you eat them. Like, do you find that like no matter what the age, just everyone's like, oh yeah, check these mushrooms out. Absolutely. I think it's it's linked to our hunter gatherer. I think yeah. it's con- I think it's connected to it as a food source. And then because they're so pretty, like yeah, we have these bright purple bolaras, or how you know, mm-hmm. there's so many different types of them, but they are so as they're maturing, they're sort of like pinky, and then they go like this violet, deep purple, and it's yeah, magical. And then showing gills and looking at the textures and. No, it's super fascinating, super fascinating for kids. And then I love just handing out field books and and getting them to ID them themselves and working through, I mean, it's the first introduction and it's the same with the macroinvertebrates. If we, I've got these beautiful uh, flow charts where it's like, does it have legs? No. Mm-hmm. Yes. Does it have a shell? No. Then it's not a snail. Win. But finding, yeah, a, a field guide and getting kids to work through uh, you know, paying attention to, you know, does the gill connect all the way down to the stem? Uh, is it single gills coming out? And, sh- and just really paying attention. That's the first step of science. And, and paying attention creates wonder. And so, it, you know, living things, uh, looking at those mushrooms, looking at things like caterpillars, like you say, with the, with the butterflies or moths. And looking at the, the the hairs that you can see on a lot of things like hemlock mm. looper, and it just I love how absorbed the kids get when they when they find that place. It brings a whole new level, and it's also something. Again, I'm so into anything with outdoor learning that's a little bit contemplative. So we mm-hmm. play a lot of games. We play a lot of energy burning. That's great to have the space to do that, especially with the younger kids, but. I play um, a game where I am 
zap them all with my shrink ray. Like I'm talking like kindergarten age. Like I zap right. them all with my shrink gun. And they all zoop, and they're all the size of ants. And then I get them to go to either a, a tree or a log that's lying down, and I get them using their magnifier to look at the ridges of the whorls of, of tree bark and imagine they were the size of an ant, and they had to get from one end of the log to the other. I call it the ant theme park, right? How would you get, and what would it feel like, these ridges that are just like a few mil deep? But if you're only half a millimeter high how <laughs> how does that feel and the magnifier really gives them the ability to visualize that and then use their imagination it's like you know love you Gillian Judson it is engaging imagination and learning it resonates it connects it builds desire to learn and that makes me so happy Hey there, folks. This is Ian, one half of the Earthy Chats host team. I'm just here to let you know about the Talking with Green Teachers podcast produced by Green Teacher. If you don't know who Green Teacher is, we are a nonprofit network of environmental educators all around the world. You can join this network for only $32 a year. That includes a subscription to our quarterly magazine, which has been running in North America since 1991. All proceeds go back into the organization to help us enhance environmental literacy among young learners. For more information, check out greenteacher.com. You can find Talking with Green Teachers wherever you get your podcasts. All of the resources featured in this podcast, plus many more, for students and educators alike, can be found online at the Outdoor Learning Store. Visit www outdoorlearningstore.ca to view what's on offer. From waterproof notepads to binoculars and dip nets to sit pads, the store has you covered to take your learning outside. In addition, there are educator resource books to help you take your outdoor education to the highest level. That's www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We're Canada's non-profit resource store. The other thing is you can look at inanimate objects as well. And I love teaching about the rock cycle and, again, how landscape evolution happens and, and how natural processes all interact on different spatial and temporal scales. I took a bunch of grade seven eighths out. It's actually like a rock climbing area and it's a part of the... I guess they call it, the. it's got a bunch of different names, but it's part of the sort of Shushwep complex, which is a bunch of metamorphic rocks that were originally laid down like four billion years ago. Some of the oldest rocks on earth um, under no shallow seas. No, nothing. No problem at all. Four billion. I try and get that. I draw the wow. circle, the zeros on the board and even my brain. Like it's the, it's the history of earth. It's about as old, you know, as it's Just possible. about. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, yeah. 4.7 or whatever and it just yeah so it's shallow seas first water on earth laid down you know sediment turned to rock and then about 200 million years ago we had this tectonic where the sort of pacific plate underneath the pacific ocean and the north american plate underneath the continent yep. it's like pushing together where vancouver island is and that's where you get all this sort of tectonic activity anyway it shoved up all of the mountains in the columbias and got like, all the rocks got you know heat and pressure and tumbled and we've got this incredible array there's like and it's all uh, an enormous amount of quartzite so 
sandstone turns into quartzite. So you get the sand coming down from the sort of sandy sediments. And then we also have a lot of uh, limestone and marble. And these rocks, lots of crystals. There's even things like garnet, which is like the ruby family and all of these things. And giving kids hand lenses. We're also looking at minerals, right? So minerals are the building blocks of rock. And quartz is the most common rock building mineral on earth. And it's pretty and shiny and there's lots of it here so we're getting kids to test there's like this Mohs hardness so you can test various things by running them against either like a small piece of tile or a knife or a fingernail and it tells you how hard it is whether it scratches or not what mineral you've got but we're doing that and I one of our kids who has complex learning needs and has a special educational teacher all the time and Mm -hmm. really struggles to spend time in the formal classroom spends a lot of time learning alone who just it loved firstly the four kilometer hike in and out to this spot and then I, I go over and I'm chatting with this student and they were like you could go away I'm just I'm loving this and like the EA is like looking at me like normally you know like it's a struggle like we're gonna do this task and you have to do it and come on like need you to focus for a minute and he was just could have been there for days and at the end, we get back to the bus and this particular student says to me, like, this was the best day of school I've ever had. And the educational assistant said to me, that is the longest, like, full day activity that this particular student has ever had in school. And I've been working with him for years. That's the first time that he was so engaged and actually stayed learning within his cohort, learning with their peers. And, like, she was sort of, in tears and mm-hmm. and it was just you know a magnifier and some rock and it's just finding that thing that connects with a particular kid that can change their whole time and now like, i know this student later on and is now like a complete geologist obsessed says he's going to go to ge- university and do geology and it's just like a complete nerd about all things and it's just it's just the best thing ever it just made me so happy well, this is why we do differentiated instruction. This sort of convergent style of education that has been dominant for so long is so exclusive to people with diverse learning needs. And I mean, you know, whether someone has an official label and has an educational assistant, we all have complex learning interests and tendencies and learning in a, a particular way. I mean, this is, you know, preaching to the choir, but obviously that just is so limiting and outdoor learning brings with it so many opportunities for differentiating instruction and the more tools you can bring into it the more you're likely to find that spark for a student who is finding it difficult to conform and it also goes to show that you don't need to conform to succeed i mean this student has evidently found their niche and the area where they can be them and they can use their interests and what now sounds like expertise and flourish as opposed to feeling bad that they're not fitting in with quote-unquote regular instruction. So it's, you know, again, preaching to the choir. I think people in our network and people listening to this podcast are very much aware of this. But you know what? It's good to reinforce it. And we need these real life stories with real people to reinforce it. Absolutely. So many of these things I do with the kids. It's it's actually, even as an educator, 
educational for me. When I find these amazing resources that enable kids to become scientists in that moment or investigate the world around them in more depth uh, or be comfortable when they do it, I'm all comfortable when they do it because they're more likely to spend more time there if they're kneeling on a sit pad, for example, than if they've got to, you know, especially in North America where you guys don't wear uniforms to school where you're wearing your own clothes. Like they don't want to get their clothes rough. Uh, whereas, you know, we all looked the same and, and nobody much cared. But the more time I spend out there and realize how lucky we are to have access to some of these more uh, modern resources and equipment, I've realized how much of an impact it is having. And I feel like deeply lucky to be an educator in this day and age where we have these and where more kids have access uh, to the outdoors and it should be all of them. I feel like, you know, you know me, learning outdoors should happen every day. But yeah, I've had some, you know, a lot of the most magical moments I've had as, as an educator have been in these outdoor moments. It's a pretty special thing to have. And tools like magnifiers, I mean, how much are they? 10 bucks, 15 bucks? Like one of my favorite tools is a little 10 power hand lens and it probably was 10, $12. And I use it all the time. I've actually got a, I, I'm looking right now at a, a little sample of a service berry and I've been trying like crazy to key it out. And you mentioned about, you know, keys earlier with insects and very useful with plants but at a certain point you sometimes have to just give in and say you know what it's probably a hybrid plants do that a lot yeah but that's part of the fun exactly we are the columbia basin environmental education network or cbeen you can visit our website at cbeen.ca we are the regional network for environmental education in the Columbia Basin, supporting a community of engaged and effective environmental educators by connecting them to resources, information, professional development and networking opportunities. Stoked on Science, providing engaging, educational and fun programmes across the Columbia Basin. Is your school or organisation looking to develop your environmental programming? Connect your outdoor time more deeply to the curriculum or engage your students or teachers with unique programmes that go beyond the basic science topics, like delving into the history of the earth, how it's changed and where it's going. If so, visit www.stokedonscience.com to connect for environmental education consulting or to book programs for your K-12 and adult professional development courses. Well, I would be remiss in an episode where we're talking about looking at small life through magnifiers to not talk about the little visitor that I had hitch a ride on my body many moons ago after a trip to Panama. <laughs> I had lots of mosquito bites because we were in the lowland rainforest near the Panama Canal and I got back and eventually the mosquito bites disappeared except for one on my Achilles tendon and it's actually interesting because interesting because I'm reading the Iliad right now so I'm actually reading about the namesake of Achilles and from what I understand we'll learn about where the term Achilles heel came from but I digress so all my mosquito bites had disappeared except for this one on my uh, right around my Achilles tendon. And not only did it not disappear, but it was getting bigger. And two, three weeks after returning from the trip and starting to feel a bit of pain occasionally 
from in and around the area of this growing quote unquote mosquito bite, I was like, I should probably, I should probably see somebody about this. Although I was, I think many people would be quite horrified at some of the prospects. And if you use your imagination, you can think probably pretty quickly what those prospects are. I was pretty intrigued. So I, I ended up going to emerge. Uh, there, I was in university at the time and there was no, no walk-in clinic nearby. So I ended up going to emerge and it's like January, it's flu season, everyone's sick. And I'm in there like quite excited for what's to come. So knowing you now i can imagine you just eager like possibly even taking your own books like it could it possibly be this uh sorry continue on i'm i'm loving it most people will be absolutely horrified but you are excited carry on yeah well so i didn't have any books but pretty well the closest thing to it so i get into the uh i get into the room and the you know i see the nurse and i i'm like i have um I think I have a, an insect friend along with me and she kind of looks at me like, you know, who's this 20-year-old, thinks he knows what he's talking about. She takes a look and hmm. Doctor comes in. I'm like, yeah, I think, uh, think I have an insect. It might be a bot fly, a bot fly larva. And, you know, quick Google search of bot fly. Go to Google Images and you'll you'll get the picture. So he's also kind of skeptical and he takes a look and he brought out some kind of magnifier, you know, probably much more expensive than a, a $10 hand lens. And he kind of looks at me, he's like, I think that is a bot fly. So I was like, okay, um, so do you have to like take it out? He's like, well, yeah, we'll just do like local anesthetic and it just freeze the area around the foot and easy peasy. And it wasn't so close to the Achilles tendon that there was any concern about that. So that, that side of things was, was fine. So they apply the, the local anesthetic and I'm still quite intrigued by the whole thing. Mm. And he cuts in there and he, I don't know if you've ever had a, a local anesthetic and you can sort of like it, it's not painful, but you can kind of feel that they're doing something in that area. So I could feel that he was working and that he, he was in and he opened it up is like, yep, that's a bot fly. All right. Sorry, just quick disclaimer yeah. for those of you who are squeamish. Like, if you do Google this, when you now Google it now, Google it now, and now listen because it's it's going to deepen the enjoyment or disgust. Yeah, they kind of look like a tadpole, ish, <laughs> but maybe not as charming. Yeah. <laughs> I think tadpoles are, have a certain degree of charm yeah, to them. Yeah, this is more, I don't know, for me it's more like a, no, carry on, I can't describe Yeah. So my next question, of course, is can I see it? Yes. And, and then the next question after that is can I take a picture of it? And I actually do have a picture of it still. And it was dead by the time it came out. I was kind of hoping it would still be alive. You go on YouTube, you can see videos of people taking bot flies out and they're still like writhing around this was not writhing around anymore but uh it did come out and i think i had like one stitch so i had this like scar of honor and I, it's still the slightest tiny little scar if you were to take a magnifying glass and look you can still see the little whitish mark where this very 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 small non-intrusive incision was and yeah i mean i walked out of the hospital that there was no recovery whatsoever but, but you were the, the host to a parasite. I was the host to a parasite, and it just so happened. So I was at Queen's University at the time in Kingston, Kingston, Ontario. And it just so happened the doctor was also a prof at Queen's, as, as many of the doctors at this hospital were. And 
he was like, do you mind, you know, just for my research, like just getting some basic data. So here I like was writing out on a list. It was like latitude and longitude of where I was and what the climate was and the altitude and what type of rainforest it was in because typically mosquitoes are the vectors for bot flies. So a mosquito was carrying the eggs and the mosquito landed on me and then the egg got inside me and then the, the larva was inside me and it did not emerge to become an actual winged bot fly. But he was interested in this just for his work and his research. So I was very excited to actually participate in science and scholarship as a subject, <laughs> an accidental but very willing subject. I, yeah, I I mean, nobody could see we're doing this via Zoom. So I am video and I am making very strange faces when he was telling that story. I don't know if anyone else was. Because to me, the idea of being a parasitic host is my absolute worst nightmare. That is the fear of the tropics, is that something will attempt to make you its host. And so the fact that you found that fun and enjoyable and exciting is really testament to your, I don't know, scientific brain and interest in life. I've had local anaesthetic uh, to have a mole cut out they wanted mm. to have a look at it it was all fine but I was asked it's on my back like my upper back so I asked for a mirror because he had like almost like a dentist mirror I guess so he could show me what what he was doing as he was cutting it out because they're quite almost like like a dihedral shape um it's like mm -hmm. a diamond in there right so it's got like a root and you you'd think it was just a flat surface but it comes out with all this stuff attached to it so I do understand the sort of minor surgery being interested in it but the mm, yeah the idea of the living thing inside my skin is very unpleasant and I think a lot of that goes back to just the context I grew up in where having tools like magnifiers and microscopes and insect nets and dip nets that was just my world so I wasn't as much put off by quote-unquote creepy crawlies. You know, spending a lot of time with dip nets in aquatic environments and looking for mayfly larvae. And when I was a bit older, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, looking at the reproductive appendages of dragonflies and damselflies to identify them down to species. Without that, the botfly story may have been very different. Yes, a little more interesting. I do definitely feel and I utilize things like magnifiers to help some young people overcome their fears of bugs and creepy crawlies. Yep. And I'm pretty passionate about teaching about how important bugs uh, and, and the decomposers of our ecosystem are and the services that they provide in breaking down the waste that nature and everything within it create and I get the kids to look at the trees uh, in a forest and I tell them if you know the bugs and the worms and the insects weren't here and the fungi and the soil then look up to to the top of those trees and all of that from surface to the tops of these 30-40 meter high trees would just be brown sludge it would just be leaves and dirt and the scat of many many animals so you know those bugs are your friends those bugs do a good job and i feel like yeah getting up close to them with a magnifier you there's still a bit of distance but you can still get a really good look and it will help some of those kids who've got a bit of a discomfort get over it bring small life closer to you it's the way
Thank you for listening to Earthy Chats, Fables from the Field. You can access all of the equipment we feature in the show at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. We hope you enjoy your own field adventures this summer. Take care. Send you, I mean, I'll send you the botfly picture. Oh my god! Please do. I googled it. You made me feel it's wild. That's huge. Like what the one I was looking at. Oh god. Oh, oh. Yeah, I don't know. There's something about living under skin. I've watched too many sci-fi alien movies in my day. <laughs> yeah. Um.